The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. This afternoon, uh, as we begin this panel, I'll go ahead and start by introducing myself and our panelists. My name is Josh Wester. I serve as the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, based in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, To my left is Matt Capps. Matt is the Senior Pastor of Fairview Baptist Church in Apex. Uh, Next to Matt is Dan Darling, who serves as our Vice President for Communications at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And then next to Dan is Tanya Shelnut, who is the Regional Alliance Director for the Alliance Defending Freedom. So, uh, as our as we kick off our conversation today, I'll ask our first question uh, to Tanya. Tanya, uh, just thinking about the idea of religious liberty, ADF is one of the uh, foremost institutions leading the fight in protecting and preserving uh, religious freedom in the United States. Uh, so let's begin there and, and just try to lay a foundation for our conversation today. Uh, when we say religious liberty, what is it that we're actually talking about? Sure. So religious freedom is the first freedom granted to us by God, and it's protected in the First Amendment of the Constitution. And it protects our right to freely live out our faith. And there's a lot of um, misunderstandings as to what uh, religious freedom is and what it does. And the, the reality is, is that being able to freely live out your faith without governmental in, uh, intrusion and without the um, uh, uh, hostility of the culture as well. And so that's, we're going to dive more in depth and put more tentacles to that, um, but that's a 30,000-foot view of what we're talking about today. Perfect. So um, thinking about the fact, Matt, you're a pastor, you're a senior pastor here at a local church in North Carolina, as many of the people in the room are. why is religious liberty something that is important uh, for pastors to think about? Why does it matter on a local church level? Well, I think as, as believers and as Christians, um, we, we have specific beliefs about moral and ethical issues. We have spe- specific beliefs about what God has commanded us to do and what's good for the flourishing of society. And I think uh, observing and being a part of this discussion in society as a whole is important. Uh, and you mentioned um, in two ways, you know, the, you know, what at what level does the government either censure or or support that? And then number two, you know, how, how does it how does it how do we express our faith in a way in a society that's um, really going to become more and more hostile to it? And uh, and what I mean by hostile is. Um, you kind of compare the definition of tolerance from today to 20 years ago. Tolerance 20 years ago was um, respect, respecting someone and disagreeing about an issue, but doing it respectfully. Now tolerance is almost defined as you not only respect them, but have to view their, their, their beliefs as legitimate or just as true as yours, which we can't do that, right? But so how do, how do, we, how do we promote religious liberty and the freedom of religion and expression in a way that is... Um, not only true to, to what we see in Scripture, but also, I think, good for society as a whole. I mean, this is something that we as Christians need to understand. Me as a pastor specifically, um, you know, uh, all pastors are public intellectuals, if you will. We're always we're teaching and sharing, regardless of the size of our audience. And so um, having a good understanding of these issues is important as we shepherd our congregations and, and people Either listen to us or, or tune us out, if you will. I don't know if you're gonna if you want to add anything else to that, Dan. I mean, um, there's a there's a few things to think about. Number one, um, 
to trample on religious liberty is to trample on the conscience, right? Mm -hmm. So a government that plays referee in terms of uh, re religious ideas, whether it's a state state sanctioned government, you know, a, a state sanctioned church, or whether it you know uh, restricts freedom, is basically trampling on someone's human dignity. Because part of what makes us human is is a conscience. Part of what makes us human is the ability to to choose to worship our Creator, um, or or to choose not to. And so, uh, a state that will do that, I think, is really dangerous. You know, Jesus when he was confronted by the, uh, the, the Sadducees and uh, those who were sympathetic to Rome. You know, they're saying, you know, should we pay the tribute? Should we pay the tax? And he asked them to, you know, pull an image out of their, you know, show me the coin that you have. And he said, whose image is this? And they said, it's the image of Caesar. And then he said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And most of us see that as, as um, Jesus saying to pay your taxes, right? Which... We should pay our taxes, even though we don't really like paying our taxes. Um, but he's actually saying more. Because at that time, that was a revolutionary thing to say. Because in those times, people thought everything belonged to Caesar. And he's actually he's saying, okay, there are some things that are delegated to, to the state, but there's things that are not the property of Caesar. He, he, and he's not lord over the conscience. So you, you are not created in the image of the state. You're created in the image of God. And so, you know, as Baptists, this is a core tenet, that we believe a, 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 in a free church and a free state. Um, and we believe, as Baptists, that if the state gives us freedom, that the gospel will ultimately win in the marketplace of ideas. That we don't need the state putting their foot on the scale in our favor, but we don't want the state restricting our freedom either. That, that, that's really good. I mean, as we think about, especially uh, this topic for Baptists being such an important conversation, because of our history. Uh, when we think about the idea of religious freedom throughout uh, the history of the United States, uh, for most of us, as we think about that in terms of uh, historical vantage point, we would say religious liberty is, is for a long time been considered something that is a public good, uh, that is that is in the public interest. But uh, especially recently, and Dan, I'll, I'll start with you with this question, but anybody else feel free to jump in. Uh, religious liberty has often been, uh, in the last a uh, few years, been framed in such a negative light, been called a license to discriminate, as opposed to something that is seen as being a public good. So, Dan, what, you, what is your uh, take on the lay of the land as far as religious liberty goes? It's really interesting how how religious liberty, in terms of advocacy, has moved throughout the course of our history from left to right to left, like back and forth, depending on sort of who has power. And one, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, religious li liberty really protects the minority. Right, so in the in the early part of this country, Baptists fought for religious liberty um, in the founding of the country to protect, you know, Baptists and other other groups that were not state-sanctioned churches. Right, um, uh, when when the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was signed uh, back in the '90s, uh, it was actually in response to a Supreme Court decision that uh, was went against uh, the rights of Native Americans in some of their their religious rituals. But it was sponsored by, of all people, Ted Kennedy. And it was a unanimous vote, I believe, in the House and Senate, or maybe the one or two that voted against it, and signed by President Clinton, right? So it was, it was this idea that it wasn't really controversial. It's only now until it's clashed with the sexual revolution, right? And I, I think that's that's kind of the... The essence of the class today, um, 
But I, I think, you know, it's important for Christians to to really stand up for religious liberty, not just for our own rights, but for the rights of all all, all religions to, to practice their faith. I and mean, even our early Baptists said that, that they were fighting for Jewish people and Muslims, even when there were very few of those in the United States. So I, I think that's really important uh, for, for us to maintain. And even and even when Christians are in the majority, or, or, or you know, evangelicals are in the majority, you know, sometimes we've had a tendency to not think about religious liberty very much. Uh, but I think we're going to be thinking about it increasingly now that, you know, we're sort of confronted with the sexual revolution. So Yeah, and I, I personally want to speak to that. I mean, we're today celebrating Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. Somebody has gone before us for our current freedoms. I was born and raised in Billings, Montana. And in Montana, there's more bars than there are churches, if you've ever been there. I was not raised in a Christian home. I was uh, raised in a very dysfunctional home. And my faith journey didn't happen until I came here to North Carolina. And Pastor Steve Jurgel back there was actually very instrumental in that. And, And here's my thing with this. I have five kids. You have grandkids. You have nieces and you have nephews. Nehemiah tells us we're supposed to fight for our wives, our sisters, our brothers, our homes. And, and, and it's on us. And it's not half-truth that set us free. It's whole truth that sets us free. And, and the next generation is counting on us to take a stand and stand up for them. And, and that's one of the things that Alliance Defending Freedom um, views all of their cases. All the work that we do is viewed through generational wins because we're committed to them. And I think that goes back to we've got to take back the narrative, start talking about what we're for instead of what we're against. And and speak truth into our culture because that's what's going to change lives and that comes starts with us right here if i can add something to what she said i mean i sometimes i'll run into to folks who i think are well-meaning uh who will say you know should we is it even worth fighting for religious liberty you know as a christian should we not lay down our rights like jesus did and i have a couple of responses to that number one you know uh, sometimes that's coming from someone, and I'm like, well, you're, you're meeting in a school or a YMCA with your church. So someone fought for religious liberties for the fact that you could do that. So, um, you know, people who fight for religious liberty, I feel, are holding up the ropes of those who do gospel work, right? You're kind of trying to clear the way so people can do gospel work. Now, look, the church, the church is not, you know, God is not dependent on religious liberty to build the church. You know, the church has grown through times of great persecution, uh, but there's nowhere in the scripture that says we should, we should, you know, ask for it, right? And especially if we have um, a share of power in this country, you know, we're, we're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. If I read Romans 13 right, and God holds the government accountable, it's not just the rulers he's holding accountable, it's also the citizens, because we share in that power. So... We do need to think about religious liberty very seriously. Uh, you also look, I think, through Scripture where um, uh, we mentioned the, the Jesus talking about render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. So he's clearly creating a space there between the state and the church. You know, f- but we also see Paul throughout the book of Acts. I'm, I'm amazed when I read through the book of Acts. Paul, who was unafraid to go to jail, unafraid to die for his faith, also at times appealed to his Rights as a Roman citizen, many times with the book of Acts. Um, and so there's, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think that's perfectly good. And then we see Paul pray, or ask Timothy to pray, in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says to pray for kings and all those in authority. Um, 
we usually look at that and say, okay, this is why we should pray for our leaders, and we should. But why does he say to pray for our leaders? He said that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. And then he goes into the rest of the passage, which talks about the, the good and the spread of the gospel. So he's, he's asking Timothy to pray for religious liberty, essentially, uh, at a time when it wasn't granted. You know, all Timothy could, could do is pray. You know, they didn't have um, ADF in the first century, unfortunately. Um, they didn't have uh, the opportunity to speak up. So I, I think as Christians, you know, we, you know, speaking up about religious liberty and, and doing what we can, uh, I think is, is good and right. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So Paul tells Timothy to pray uh, for you know the good of the society mm-hmm. and a society that was, um, I would say, they were, they were persecuting the church and probably mm-hmm. holding them at, at yeah. arm's length. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's praying for, so pray for the leaders, pray for pray for opportunities like religious liberty. We, on the other hand, are coming out of I would say a culture where we, where we were the moral majority, yeah. and now we're a prophetic minority. What should we be praying? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of thoughts about that. I think, one, sometimes some of the language we might have used as a majority, you know, when we think about America in terms of our, our founding, I think America, obviously, I think everyone would agree that America had a lot of Christian influence in the founding. You know, there were... Uh, but sometimes, sometimes when we talk about America being a Christian nation, I think we mean well. But sometimes some of that kind of language can work against religious liberty, right? Because if we, you know, we don't want to petition the government to make laws that are favorable to, to, to us. We want to petition the government to make laws that allow free exercise of religion, right? So, for instance, if a, if a local government can shut down, you know, if you can use zoning codes or whatever to shut down another religion from building a, a house of worship, those can also be used against the church, Right. So we're praying actually just for the, for the space within a society to preach the gospel, to do what God has called us to do. Now, we do care about the flourishing of our societies, and so we want to bring Christian principles to bear on society. But we don't, we don't want nor need a government to put their foot on the scale in favor of Christianity. We don't, we don't, necessarily, we, we don't need that because we believe that you know, in the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives. We don't need the sword of the state. Yeah, right? so we need the space. And I yep. think we can be comfortable just just the space and not asking for just favor for us. Right. We can ask for the space because we believe we have the only true message right. but of I the world that, of hope. But I think that takes courage. Yes. And I think that that should be something we should be praying for is courage yeah. because we see a lot of apathy and what you don't know is what you don't know. And so oftentimes we operate in just saying nothing when we need to speak in a loving, redemptive way into our society because we know it's the whole truth that sets us free, not the half truth that set us free. And so <clears throat> I think uh, courage is very, very important. And, and if I could just say that, I mean, one of the reasons we partner with ADF because, you know, they do a lot of work that I think a lot of Christian people don't notice or don't see, but they enjoy the, we enjoy the benefits of. But ADF has has people all over the country and they're doing work on the front lines every day fighting for the rights of uh, of religious people to practice their faith. And so we, we as pastors and church planners and people who do nonprofit work and just think of all the work that that Christian organizations and religious organizations do in our society to benefit our culture. Um, it's hard even to put a price tag on it. We can do all that because there are people like ADF 
fighting to, to make sure that we have the space and we have the freedom to do that. I think we take it for granted a little bit. That's right. That's a good, I mean, it's a really great point. And um, to kind of expand on that, talking about the things that we that are often overlooked that we don't see, I'll just turn it back over to Tanya. Could you tell us what kind of work specifically the ADF is involved in? Yeah, so we're, we are the nation's largest Christian legal organization. We're celebrating 25 years this, uh, this year. And we, the Washington Post, and not that I support all of their writings, but they did call us. Uh, the Christian legal powerhouse. And oftentimes people uh, reference ADF as the special ops of the, the judicial world. We're behind the scenes doing a lot of work to what Dan was saying. And so uh, we defend religious freedom uh, that opposes all attempts to compel uh, people to compromise their beliefs um, or retreat. Uh, because again, religious freedom is good for all. And so, um, you know, we work uh, training attorneys. Um, we have, I can't tell you how many clerkships we have, um, and, and we're international. So if you have a win at the UN, that affects 193 countries. So we have over 250 employees, uh, 70 in-house uh, attorneys. We've been at the Supreme Court nine times in the last seven years with a 100% win record, and we were the direct um, litigators for that. That, that's by God's grace that we've been granted yeah. that. Yeah. So how are you, how are you funded? Uh, we are funded by private citizens who care very much about what we do. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Where are you based? Our, our home office is in Scottsdale, Arizona, but we have an office in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, New York, and then home, some home offices throughout the country. And so... ADF does uh, really incredible work. Uh, You've undoubtedly heard of many of the court cases that they've been involved in and many of their, uh, week week by week, they're doing uh, incredible work to advance the cause of religious freedom. And you are, uh, as we're talking now, I hope that it's bringing to mind just the importance of this topic. And as you're thinking about that, specifically in the context of, of local church or the ministries that you're involved in, I just want to ask, Matt, you, you've mentioned earlier that your church has had to reach out to ADF uh, for matters related to religious uh, religious freedom before. What kinds of questions, or tell us about that experience? Well, I was going to say, you know, pastors in the room, you know, there are certain issues you walk into, or uh, for us, particularly, it was looking at our policies and our documents, and then our church covenant, and uh how those things fit within the legal realm and what's wise and what is good to put on paper, what's not to get on paper, put on paper. And uh, I would say you know, both the ERLC and um, ADF are great. And so we reached out to you guys, particularly as we wrote a policy on um, marriage and um, sexuality, like our position as a church. And uh, you can imagine... You know how controversial that would be in culture, but I wanted us as a church to have a statement that um, that, that protected us as pastors. If you know someone um, wanted to call the church and um, asked if we would perform a same-sex couple marriage, or you know, do we have a policy as a church that that, that states that up front? And so um, these guys were very helpful for that with that, and and we were going through the co- church covenant process, writing that. Um, there were some questions from some of the, the, the members of our congregation that were had related to how does this covenant relate to certain things and and law and, and and you know is it binding questions like that and 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 these guys were very helpful in helping me walk through that understand the place of that document in the context of the larger framework and so um, we didn't have any major you know it wasn't 
you know, big nationally known things, but it was just very helpful things on a local church level that you might want to have an outside resource to speak into. So, and Dan mentioned the you know the sexual revolution earlier. Uh, that that is something that in coming days, if, if your church or your context has not been directly uh, confronted with questions about how to deal uh, with. Uh, particular issues related to uh, transgenderism or other questions related to sexuality, like Matt mentioned, uh, just are you required to do a same-sex marriage? These kinds of questions. Um, ADF has a program called Church Alliance. That Tiny, could you tell us a little bit about Church Alliance and what sure. that is? Sure. Yeah. Uh, before I go into it, though, I, I just want to say a couple things, because <clears throat> I think it's really important to, to set the stage for why did Alliance Defending Freedom create uh, the Church Alliance? And it goes to the fact that ADF is very visionary and strategic as they um, look at the, da- at the, la- the landscape ahead. Uh, we want to make sure that we put protections in place because when um, pastors are allowed to speak, speak freely, it's good for all. And we have seen that the sexual revolution uh, is trumping, uh, is attempting to trump uh, religious freedom. And so Alliance Defending Freedom, we're receiving so many internal requests for document review uh, to what Matt was saying, like 600 in a year and a half time. But we did not have the capacity to handle all of those, but we saw the urgency and the need um, from pastors to put something together. And so we created the Church Alliance Initiative. And I'll, I'll speak a little bit about uh, what that is. We have a partnership actually with the North Carolina Baptist. I will provide you more information about that. I have some handouts in the back um, that affords you the opportunity to... <clears throat> Um, it is a membership program, and but it's a very affordable membership program. So let me share with you about a church that um, in Monroe, North Carolina, at the Cross Fellowship, there was a church in, in a particular building, and that church eventually left. At the Cross Fellowship, came into that particular building and renovated it, went to the city to ask for an occupancy permit, and the city said, no, we are no longer allowing churches to um, uh, meet in this building. So they contacted us. They're a church plant. They contacted Alliance Defending Freedom, and we believe wholeheartedly in the, in the importance of church planting. Church planters are going into communities, focusing on the needs of the communities, and when schools or public officials push back we want to be able to help them so for a hundred dollars we sent out an attorney to meet for with at the cross fellowship we wrote a letter we went to the um, a court for them we ended up winning that case and they expanded the zoning laws so that more churches can meet all over the city of Monroe. Why is that important? That's important because if we did not, once again, it's that church is being marginalized out of communities. The church is meant to be the heart of the community. And we don't want churches to feel like they can't do that work and be bullied or intimidated in that. And when legal precedence is set, so say a legal precedence was set and that case ended up going and they had bad facts and it was a bad case, that sets legal precedence and that affects everybody, not just the small church, but all churches. And so um, so that's part of what we're doing at the Church Alliance um, and, uh, program within ADF is we're reviewing documents, we're looking through them, making sure that there's... Um, uh, it's tightened up. You have no vulnerabilities. And there's in, in the legal realm, there's good practice and best practice. Good practice is adopting the Baptist Statement of Faith. 
but best practices taking them what you're doing in your community and the and the outreach that you're doing and putting those into your legal documents that's where we come in and we have attorneys supreme court attorneys looking through your documents now i know this is important for me to say you all are Baptist preachers and you do not like to be told what to do. Okay. So I just want you to know, we do not tell you what to do. We give you advice and we give you, um, helpful hints and you choose whether or not you want to take those. And then if for some reason you were sued from a religious liberty standpoint, the church Alliance program, we would litigate on your behalf because we want to make sure that good law is put in place and we have those generational wins. If I could just add something to that too. As a, as a Baptist pastor, there's some areas I want to be told what to do, especially when it comes to the finer legal points, right? And I've heard of, uh, you know, churches are all the time updating their bylaws, right? And some of you are pastors and you have to go into church and your bylaws are old and archaic and you know, um, and you want to update them. And I've heard of churches spending hours and hours in meetings and doing this. And you could save a lot of time if you if you do something like the Church Alliance, because there's templates and there's churches that have done this before. So it, to me, it's just a matter of you know how it is when you're a pastor. You're a generalist, but you're not an expert uh, in some of these things, and you rely on experts to to help do this for you. So I mean, this is where they can really come in and help. Uh, help you in your church. And not only that, but you have direct access to the attorneys. So if you had uh, a situation where you had a transgender student come, they want to go to camp. How do you handle that? What's the best way to respond to that in a redemptive, loving way that lines up with what you're doing? You can contact one of our attorneys directly, if you're a member, and say, hey, Ray, how do I handle this? What am I supposed to do with this? Because oftentimes we see pastors laying awake at night Um, worrying and and anxious about what's going on because they don't know where to turn and they don't know who to reach out to. And we want to make sure that you don't navigate this alone, that we're there to help you with it. Matt, I want to ask you one question, just kind of following up on on this conversation. So uh, pastors, ministry leaders, they're they're busy. They've got a lot of demands. They've got so many things going on and priorities that they're focused on. What what makes it worth taking the time to deal with this? If you're somebody who's going, hey, you, you have no idea the things that I've got on my plate. What makes it worth taking up uh, the extra time to, like we talked about, tightening up these documents and making sure that you've taken the appropriate steps to protect your church? I think part of it is the culture we live in and uh, just understanding the, the times that we're in. Um, I think the, the documents... The documentation, the policies, making sure that you have structures in place and processes by which you can do things uh, effectively, but also in line with your beliefs and in ways that won't um, put you in a position to be vulnerable to any, you know, any legal cases, I guess. I think that's just part of being a good shepherd of a church and protecting the flock. Um, you know, you're, you have to think through these issues because nobody else in the congregation is going to. And you've got to prepare them to flourish in a culture that's rapidly changing. And I think just understanding how to balance those two things is important. And and you'll probably and you have people in your church who will be good resources for you um, to put together a, a team of people to look into these options. And you have resources, you know, sitting here that have worked with churches. And I just think it's it's just part of the the role of being a good pastor and leader of a local church is is helping the church think through these things and making sure the church is protected and is prepared to 
to navigate waters in a culture where um, you really know you never know what's going to hit you. Well, and that's actually, Josh, if you don't mind, who here has heard of the Equality Act? Show a raise of hand. Okay, so maybe a third of you. I think in response to what Matt was talking about, this is really important. The Equality Act um, just recently passed the House. It's obviously going to be dead on arrival at the Senate, but I want to share with you just a couple of highlights about the Equality Act and why why it's important and why taking what Matt said and and his advice on being prepared. The Equality Act uh, undermines women's equality, forces women and girls to share private spaces uh, with men. Um, And the reality is, is that the Equality Act has no religious exemptions. So therefore, you cannot be, you you don't get to hire who you want. So your baptistry, okay, you have men's lockers and women's lockers. If there is a male that comes to your church and is identifying as a female and wants to go into the women's locker room, under the Equality Act, if it was to pass, would be allowed to do so. And that's why it's important that we as believers and pastors and leaders be visionary and strategic and be proactive to what Matt was saying and be prepared with your documents because we don't know. Now, we don't want to be chicken little, the sky is falling, but we also need to be proactive and let you know what's happening out there. And I suspect Dan could probably speak even into that a little bit more. Yeah, I think we had, you know, just to follow up on what both of you were saying, you know, it's good stewardship as a pastor, church leaders, to make sure your church is in a good, I mean, and you're already doing this, right, with, with uh, your church insurance and your church policies. We're, we're doing a panel next, uh, after this, on uh, the difficult issue of sexual abuse and make sure your policies and procedures are in place. And, and, and using uh, uh, folks like ADF, it's just good stewardship of, of what God has, God has given us. I think we need to be aware. We don't want to be alarmist, as she said, you know, but we also know that, look, the, the message of the gospel and the, and the, um, the, the, the ethics that come out of uh, living for the kingdom of God uh, are, are at odds with, increasingly at odds with the culture. I mean, we shouldn't fear that because Jesus told us that, right? To, if, you, if we follow him, uh, that the service is not greater than his master. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world is, that, that the way that Christians are called to live is at odds with the world. We shouldn't be shocked by that. I mean, this is how Christians have been living for 2,000 years. And yet we also need to be prepared in our churches and our congregations. We're willing, as Christians, uh, to stand up for the gospel uh, at any cost. But we also have a stewardship as a citizen, and uh, we should take advantage of our rights and, and, and try to create that space. And I, and I like what she said about Think about generations, right? So when we when we create and we fight and we create space for religious liberty, it's not just for our generation, it's for the ones to come, right? So if you're meeting as a church plant um, in a YMCA or or in a elementary school today, you're meeting there because somebody in a previous generation fought for that right. Um, even if you're meeting in a traditional church building, there's religious liberty involved in the fact that you're zoned as a church and there's, you know, there's certain uh, freedoms that churches have. Our freedom to preach, our freedom to, to uh, not have to be licensed by the state, right, uh, is because our Baptist forefathers fought for religious liberty, not as established religion. So I think it's a stewardship to the next generation. Let's do what we can. We, we do that anyways. We're trying to prepare, do whatever we can so the next generation can preach the gospel with freedom.
And so this is just kind of one area that we can do that. That's really good. So we've talked about so far, we've talked about religious liberty at the philosophical level. We've talked about some of the particulars of religious liberty in terms of uh, the appropriate documents, the steps to take to protect your church and your ministries. Uh, but let's think about the, the future for a second. You mentioned the Equality Act. Uh, when we think about religious liberty going forward, what kinds of future threats are coming toward religious liberty? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? This kind of question, just just for all of you. Yeah, so I'm 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 optimistic in some ways, and I'm pessimistic in other ways. So I'm opti- you're realistic. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm optimistic because you know I do think you know once you get past the noise that you know it, at least in the courts there seems to be some kind of bipartisan consensus on religious liberty. Even the last several court dates that, or court cases, that, especially that ADF has su- successfully argued. By the way, she was very modest, but ADF's record at the Supreme Court is, is pretty great. Um, and a lot of those, not all those, those cases have been 5-4. A lot of them had a wider margin. So I think there's a consensus there, even among you know, some liberals that, hey, this is, you know, we need to create this fairness. What I'm a little pessimistic about is that it's even political and controversial. And <coughs> You know, when I'm hearing some of the candidates even talk, I'm a little nervous. Now, you know, some of them are desperate candidates. You know, Beto O'Rourke is out of the race, thankfully. Um, but he, he made, you know, some statements like, yeah, we're going to tax churches. We but even some of these other candidates are talking about really removing some of the protections. And so if you're in Christian higher ed, for instance, um, Christian higher ed is really under, under assault, I think, in terms of accreditation, and in terms of... <laughs> you know, uh, financial aid and all that stuff. I mean, we see what happened out in California. Thankfully, that legislation didn't happen, but that would have really threatened. And so I think we have to be vigilant, not alarmist, not angry, you know, not, you know, we're, you know, Peter, First Peter 3.15 says, have an answer for every man for the hope that lies within you with kindness and gentleness, right? So we don't fight with the, with the, with the tools of, of the enemy. But I think we have to be vigilant, and it's something, you know, free... I think uh, Ronald Reagan said that freedom is something that has to be fought for in every generation. And so we can't take that for granted. I'm also, you know, I think this is a moment for ordinary Christians and pastors to, to really talk about what religious liberty is and isn't. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our folks are in favor of it, obviously. Uh, but I don't know that they fully understand what it is. And sometimes I think we, we might think it religious liberty means just favoring Christians, right? So we just want anything that favors uh, Christian organizations. But religious liberty is, is more than that. It's, it's, it's religious freedom for, for all, all folks. And I think we need to teach that as, as people so our people understand that. Either one of you want to respond? Go ahead, Matt. You got anything? I was just going to say, you know, one of the things I've tried to keep my eye on, uh, going back to that presidential candidate, yeah. you know, what happens if, churches lose their tax-exempt status. Like you guys, those of you who are pastors, you're probably working on your church budget right now. Yeah. Like What happens there? You know, Have you thought through that? Because it's coming at some point, I believe. Yeah. And that's why I tell of our young guys that come to us and want to you know, serve as interns, like, go to college and get a degree in something else before you go to seminary. Because most of you, I bet, you know, by the time my son is my age, I think the majority of pastors will be bivocational. Um, well, probably the majority of pastors right now are bivocational, but all will probably be if the tax exempt status happens the way I think it will. So we just have to be prepared. I mean, that's not being pessimistic. I mean, the gospel is still going to save, right? We just have to be prepared to, to minister within the culture we find ourselves in. 
So. I think there was a number, though. What's interesting about there was significant pushback to Beto's arguments, even from some liberals, you know, in places like the Atlantic and New York Times, because you know the the social cost. If you if you take away tax exemption from Christian for, from religious organizations, well, just not just Christian, yeah, nonprofits. Yeah. I mean, the social cost, the the goods and services, and you probably have the number. It, it's just staggering, and it doesn't just affect people like us who are, you know, white Baptist evangelicals, but it affects a lot of minority churches, a lot of immigrant churches, uh, a lot of other religious organizations that are doing incredible work, and so. You know, but I'm with Matt. I think the fact that it's even being raised by a viable or somewhat serious, semi-serious candidates is really alarming. Yeah. Well, and that's great because I was actually going to talk about that. So there's over 350,000 religious organizations that have soup kitchens, adoption centers, uh, shelters that contribute to helping 70 million people a year at a trillion dollars. So that is astronomical. And what I want to say to that is this. I'm a total an optimist. Like my cup is always half full. So I say, let's just exemplify some courage, get out there, tell our story about the good things that we're doing in our churches and in our communities. Because when we do that, it benefits all and it negates the narrative that they like to say in the sense of trying to take away our tax exempt status, right? When we can talk about how, how can you be against helping all of these people, but we've got to tell our story and tell people what we're doing. Yeah, I, one of the other one of the one of the other points that I'm sure your ADF is is very much involved in is in the area of um, adoption and foster care. You know, the adoption agencies and foster care agencies are now under under pressure to cave in on the principles. And, you know, it, it's not like Christian agencies are, are saying that the way that we conduct, you know, our agencies, how all of them should, but Christian agencies and Catholic social service agencies are saying, we care about orphans and widows, and that's part of our mandate as, as a Christian, and is the state going to force, force us out of this? And who's going to pick up, who's going to, pick it up if this if if convictionally christian agencies can't place foster kids and can't place kids in adoptive you know adoptive homes well and and that's another component of adf that we're working on is we also have the ministry alliance where we are protecting the adoption agencies we're protecting the christian higher ed because we want to make sure that they can freely live out what God has called them to. So we're doing the same thing with the ministries that we're doing with the churches, being proactive and putting protections in place. So Matt, I'm going to ask you um, a question that you, if I don't ask you, somebody else will. Um, so there's an election coming up. It's time for dinner, guys. It's, um... <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so... Uh, Looking forward to the election coming in 2020. Uh, are, you, are you? Yeah, I'm going there, man. I'm sorry. What's up? <laughs> um, Tell them to edit this. <laughs> yes. Let's, let's think about it this way. So you're, you're a local church pastor. You are trying to be faithful and, and keep the focus on the gospel. So you are here, not just in North America or the United States, but, but you're here in North Carolina. And you're thinking about your pa- pastoring your local church. But maybe in thinking through the way that you're pastoring your church and, and how you're thinking about this can help uh, those here with us today think through uh, how to talk to other Christians about it, how to minister and 
think through this issue in their own churches and ministry contexts. Uh, but there's an election coming up next year. And how are you thinking about trying to pastor your people uh, in, in light of all of the cultural changes that are happening? And as you said, like these, these threats that come in, uh, specifically like things that threaten Christian <clears throat> ministries, things that threaten religious liberty, how are you thinking about that as a, as a pastor? I would say pastors first put politics in the right place in your heart first. Um, you know, it doesn't, on the one hand, it matters who's elected into office, and on the other hand, it doesn't, right? You can't legislate in the kingdom of God. But we are also called to be good citizens and to, um, I think, you know, in our context, vote our values and pray for our leaders. Uh, but I think the problem is sometimes you see, on the one hand, you might see pastors that are too passive and kind of ignore it, or you see pastors that are so involved in it, you they've almost um, trumped the gospel for their candidate, right? See that word play there? Um, <laughs> so there's a middle, there's a middle way, um, because you can look out in your congregation and perhaps you have both Republicans and Democrats in your pews. And I would say, brother, the most divisive thing you should preach is just the gospel and what the Bible proclaims. There are certain things that we can disagree on and still have fellowship together. And don't ruin your ministry over that. Don't be a political pundit. Be a, a proclaimer of the gospel. Now, on the other hand, um, I, I do think it's, I think we need to encourage our people to be involved in the process, to vote. I think the older generation, if I think about my church in particular, they're going to be more prone to get out and vote. The younger generation is going to need a little encouragement, right? Um, I think uh, just you know, speak to the, the values that we hold as Christians, encourage people to be involved in the process. Um, one resource I would point you to um, beyond just these guys as you kind of watch the political cycle stir up is um, here in North Carolina, the North Carolina Family Policy Council. Tracy's right here on the floor. Um, you know, they they pr- produce a voter guide that does a lot of the legwork for you. You can kind of flip through and see where different candidates stand on different issues. You know, just set it on your you know the table outside the worship center. Encourage people to grab it. Um, but you know, I go back. You, you were mentioning a minute ago the when Jesus tells him to pull out the coin and it says you know. You know, whose face is on this? Well, it's Caesar's, right? And so it's almost like Jesus is being sarcastic. He's saying, well, we'll give it back to him. It's his. It's just his coin. You know, It's not that big of a deal. Render to Caesar. Give it back to him. Um, but there's also a statement in that that Caesar is created in the image of God. And so Caesar is going to have to answer to God. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. So, Regardless of who wins the election, whether it's our, you know, the candidate you like or not, um, every single one of them is going to have to give an answer to God for how they wielded the sword. And um, your responsibility is to vote your values and to speak up uh, in, in the public sphere. As Jeremiah says, um, seek the welfare of the city. And keep in mind, a lot of times we take that, that chapter and we talk about it's almost like a health, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, Israel was... Um, in exile. They weren't in a great situation. And God's telling them to seek the welfare of where they find themselves as a minority, often probably persecuted, and in the welfare of the city, you know, 
you will flourish yourselves. So I think you have to have that principle in mind as you're, as you're talking about these things. I think we have to remember, I, that's just great pastoral advice. I mean, and, and I think one of the things we have to, we have to do a few things. I think we, as pastors, we have to teach our people how to live with people and live alongside people with whom they disagree. And one of the things that's happened in this country, I think, with the decline in church attendance is that, you know, what's filled that void is politics. So we've made politics a religion. Politics has its place, right? I, I, I don't think, I don't think if, if you're obeying Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself, I don't think you can ignore the social structures that affect your neighbor's flourishing um, and say you love them. So I, I don't think I could tell my unborn neighbor that I love love him or her as myself if I have not used my voice to speak up on their behalf when I had an opportunity. Um, but what I think we have to do is, as Matt said, put it in its place. And um, I think we should, we should vote. We should join institutions, maybe even parties. But always remember that we're first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And Peter says we're, we're exiles and strangers and exiles. And what, the, what I think that means is um, um, that there should always be a little disconnect or a little dissonance between our party or our movement in the kingdom. There's always going to be a little discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a sense where you're like, you know, I may be a Republican or I may be a Democrat, and, but, but I can see where, where this party conflicts with biblical values. Or I can see, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm, less, I'm actually less concerned with your vote because voting is a hard choice, right? I mean, you feel like you're going and however you vote, you're giving up something. Right? I, but I'm more concerned what, what you do with your vote, right? And a lot of times, what, you, you know, if you're saying, I'm going to vote for this, candidate, this very flawed candidate here or this very flawed candidate here, I don't love it, but here's a, here's a range of things that I think are important, so I'm going to do that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak up against them where they're wrong. Or I'm going to vote for this flawed candidate over here, but I'm going to speak up for them there. But what happens is we wrap our ethics around our vote. And instead of our faith shaping our politics, our politics shapes our faith. We sort of mold our ethics around a, a candidate. And all of a sudden we're defending things that we, we know are wrong. And this happens on both sides of the aisle, right? So I'm not thinking of anyone, any side in particular. And I think when we do that, we're actually better citizens. You know, we can go into these spaces, into these parties, into these movements, and apply the values of the kingdom and shape them and change them, right? And knowing that our participation in politics is important and vital, but we're not home yet. We're not in the New Jerusalem yet. So and we can do this knowing that we're stepping into the mission of God, uh, it's not up to us to change the world. We're, we're, we're joining God in His mission, knowing that things are not going to be complete until Jesus comes back. Right? It's always going to be a little bit, a little disconnect. It's going to be divisive. I mean, yeah. it's as the as the as it starts to stir the uh, the talking heads yeah. and television and the radio, they're going to get going. And just keep in mind, they are saying things uh, intentionally, divisively to, for ratings. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. they're trying to stir your fear up, and they're trying to stir things up within you to make you come back. So I'll just say, you know, let's let's be some, let's have common sense when we're listening to it, you know, um, and 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 be more level-headed and wise as we have these discussions. Yeah, I mean, we are the people of God, and God doesn't just care that we stand for the right things, but but how we speak when we do it. There should be a distinctly kingdom way of speak, speaking about these issues where we're marked and people say, 
not only are they saying something that's different than I've heard, but the way they're saying it, right? Peter says, do it with gentleness and kindness, right? We, we, have, this, we have this mistaken idea that civility and courage cannot go together. That, um, that, the, that the most courageous person is the loudest person in the room, right? Or that in order to be civil, we have to give up on what we believe. And I think we can do both. Jesus, you know, Peter says we can do both. Sometimes courage means speaking up. Sometimes it means being quiet. Yeah, convictional kindness doesn't get you ratings, but it does right. honor your king. So right. make your choice. Well, and I think, too, we should put our, sometimes our anger into activism, into, into doing something. I think sometimes we think, well, I, you know, I got mad on Twitter or Facebook today. I did something. And it's like, it may have been cathartic. It may have felt good, but. Do we really move the needle? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, and I would just say at ADF, our, our role is to equip, empower, and protect you so that you can speak the truth. Um, and I personally would just caution you to stay off Twitter. <laughs> it's septic. <laughs> Don't go there. It's a, it's a dumpster fire. That's well said. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. We have time probably for two questions or so. Uh, so if anybody does have a question, if you just tell us your name and where you're serving in ministry and then ask your question. I'm David Jones, I'm pastor of First Baptist Church in Cornelius, North Carolina. Uh, I'm curious about the Equal Rights Amendment, and I, if I have my numbers right, Virginia now that it's going blue uh, is believed to going to uh, become the 38th state to, uh, to approve that. Um, where do you see the Equal Rights Amendment going? And then, in particular, with the definition of woman, what is uh, a woman in today's culture? <laughs> sure. So. Uh, uh, first off, I, I want to clarify, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to, um, I'm going to answer it, but in a very roundabout way. How about that? Um, and I'm just going to tackle the woman's issue. Um, that We are actually on a case, we just uh, uh, litigated a case at the Supreme Court, the Harris Funeral case, um, talking about um, sexual um, uh, gender identity, SOGI is what we call it. It's a SOGI. It's very, it, it's in response to this. So we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And that's the whole reason why we're having these conversations is we, we just have no idea and why we want everybody to be proactive and prepared. So first and foremost, I would, I don't know. That's my answer. But secondly, I would just ask you to pray for ADF and for the, for the um, Supreme Court um, justices and their hearts uh, that they would be very wise in their decision and that it would obviously be favorable to us because the implications are incredible. I think I could speak to ERA. I know there's been a lot of, on the one side, jubilation, you know, on the left, on the right, a little fear. And I think a lot what's been um, misunderstood is that there's actually a timeline, you know, an ex- expiration for all these states. So actually we don't have 38 states that have actually uh, ratified it because there's a timeline there. So and actually for ERA to be, to, uh, to pass, I think you'd have to start all over again, right? So I don't, I don't think there's a really good shot of that happening. So, um, I mean, I'm not an attorney either, but from what I've heard, it, it's, you know, there, there, there was a certain timeline. So it happened in the, you know, that started in the 60s, but I think that those expired. But I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so don't hold that against me. But that, that's, that's what I've heard from some attorneys, and I think, I think we're okay there. I'm Charlie Martin, pastor at Cornerstone Baptist in Winston-Salem. And the um, biblical convictions that we hold as Christians, that we hold near and dear to our hearts, 
are obviously viewed by the proponents of the sexual re revolution as being hateful and being discriminatory. And so it's almost like it drives a wedge between us that's, you know, that animosity, particularly on their part. They see us when we stand on our, our religious beliefs and, and with our religious freedom, they see that as, as being very discriminatory and, and, and hateful towards them. Is there any hope of mediating, you know, that, that friction between? Well, that's what I, why I was said, tell your story. Because when you're talking about the good things that you're doing in your community and you're helping out and you're loving on your LGBTQ neighbors, you're loving on the transgender kids, they can't come back at you and say, well, they can. But the reality is, is that you keep being you. You keep being the hands and feet of Christ. Don't let them dictate the narrative. You be you. You do what God's called you to. And that is that courage that I was talking about. You're, it's winning. Maybe not right then and there. They may still, you know, hound you and tell you you're hate-filled. But you be you and you do what God's called you to. And, you know. So we can't feed into that. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, a lot of this friction and tension I've feel like is at the national level, level exacerbated by, you know, the media likes, likes conflict. Um, but, you know, at a local level, I think when we reach out to our neighbors and love them, um, one great example, I think, in, in California, there was this really dangerous legislation that would really hurt uh, Christian institutions of higher education. Um, and the president of, of Biola University, Barry Corey, uh, you know, they, their school you know, stood strong on this and were, was part of the legislation. So he was active, you know, in the courts and, and all that, or, or not in the courts yet because the legislation hadn't passed, but they were active in the legislature. But he also took time to befriend the sponsor of this legislation and invited him, uh, a, a gay man, invited him to Biola, have him meet the students, to see everything that they were doing. They, 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 struck up such a great friendship that he actually pulled the legislation back, you know? And so I do think, look, the ki kindness is not going to win over every time. You know, sometimes you can be kind and still be persecuted for your faith, but, but I do think kindness does go a long way. And, and again, you know, kindness is not a tactic necessarily. It's what we're commanded to do anyways, right? So. Well, look at what Jesus did in the Gospels. Look who he ate with, yeah. you know? The, and just examine that, if you will, and, and you see that there is... You know, part of this relational, you know, it's a lot easier to to put someone down that you know and that has shown you love. And I think, you know, regardless of where people stand, they're human beings created in the image of God. They're eternal souls. And there's much more at stake than um, the laws of this country. We're talking about their eternity. Um, when we demonstrate kindness, that is who we are um, at the core of, of, of our Christianity. I think that there also has been... Uh, the flip side, and, and we use that to be apathetic. So, for example, if I am um, at church and I have a transgender um, man come in, and I've got male-female bathrooms, and I've got a little girl in the female bathroom, do I s compromise her safety at the expense of not offending him? And so that's where we have to be so discerning and so prayed up and walking in what the Lord's called us to because we can still show love to Him 
and still protect that little girl. And having to make sure that we balance both of those is so, so vitally important mm -hmm. and, and how we communicate that. Can I make a comment as well? And I'd like to just give you guys uh, great credit because if, if you're having trouble balancing that and, and working at the Family Policy Council, I read you guys all the time, I read you guys all the time, <coughs> I go to Matt's church. Um, and so um, if you don't know how to address these, if you, if you listen too much maybe to certain networks and you find yourself going overboard, all you have to do is sign up for an email. You know, go on ADF's website, go on ERLC's website, go on the North Carolina Family Policy Council's website, because that's the kind of rhetoric, that's the kind of uh, discussion you're going to hear on those websites. And so you'll start to train your mind a little bit more on how to respond. Um, and I think in that way, we'll start to, to be able to communicate and know how, know how to discern these situations. Tracy, I think that's, that's so well said. And I want to thank all of you for being here. Uh, one of the most uh, significant things that I learned early on uh, in my uh, tenure at the ERLC is I was speaking to one of my colleagues and I just asked the question, you know, how should we think about those people who are our political enemies? And the response was, we're Christians, we believe the Bible, and the Bible tells us that if it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. We have, we have political opponents, we have people that we have real disagreements with, but every person is made in the image of God, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember as, as we move forward. Uh, before we go, I just want to ask Tanya one last question, which is what can pastors and ministry leaders here do if they want to learn more about ADF and church right. So before you leave, I'm going to give you a handout to, to give you more information about the partnership that we have um, with the North Carolina Baptist. We're a resource for them. But you can go to, write this website down, mychurchebook.com. It's a digital ebook, a download, that gives you 10 ways to protect your church. And it goes through some of your key documents and some verbiage that you would want to have in there. Um, that would be the most important place for you to go. That's a starting point to just begin to get your mind um, moving in the direction of being proactive. That website, again, is mychurchebook.com. And I have some handouts. I'm going to come to the back of the room and uh, hand them out to you before you guys leave. We'll let you get back there. But thank you all so much uh, for being a part of this, and we really enjoy spending this time with you.